This week's episode is brought to you by ISTE. At ISTE Live 23, on June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. Get inspired about teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. And then bring that joy back to your school. Register now at isteconference.org. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at the nonprofit newsroom, Ed Surge. The pandemic has led to lots of questions about the value of higher education. And that's been especially true for liberal arts colleges. And some of the most powerful critiques of these colleges have come from within. Maybe the best example is a book written by two longtime professors called The Post-Pandemic Liberal Arts College, A Manifesto for Reinvention. Both of these authors are veteran scholars from selective institutions. One is Stephen Volk. Uh, Steve. Uh, Steve works fine. <laughs> so I'm Steve Volk, uh, Professor Emeritus of History at Oberlin College, uh, where I taught for 30 years. Uh, I founded their Teaching and Learning Center, and I'm currently the co-director of the Great Lakes Colleges Association Consortium for Teaching and Learning. And the other is Beth Benedicts. Um, Professor Emerita of World Literature, Religious Studies and Community Engagement at DePaul University, um, and also the founder and director of The Castle, which is a nonprofit organization that serves, uh, that partners with public schools in the county. At the start of the COVID-19 health crisis, these two already harbored frustrations with the workings of their colleges. While the mission statements of these small liberal arts colleges promise a focus on building students into well-rounded citizens and a commitment to diversity. But that's not what Volk and Benedicts said they saw. Instead, they felt like they were witnessing a growing arms race to build shinier facilities and do other things to cater to students from a small set of elite private high schools and wealthy public ones. So the professors channeled their longtime dissatisfactions into a sweeping plan for change, resulting in their book-length manifesto. Three years after the start of the pandemic, I decided to sit down with these authors to ask about their proposal for change and how they think things have gone since proposing it. I started by asking both professors, starting with Steve Volk, what is the change that they think is most important to rethink the liberal arts college? For me, who began my sort of journey through uh, higher education and the sense of this is where I, I wanted to devote my life, there was very much, I was very much driven by the potential of education, as many people have been in the past, to uh, upset social hierarchies and to open possibilities that didn't exist before. And my frustration was that fundamentally what we were doing was recreating hierarchies uh, and cementing in place the kind of inequities that I and many others had really hoped would be solved by providing education. And so as it became incredibly frustrating when 
when one begins to see oneself as the source of the problem and not the kind of solution that we hope for at all. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems like there is a sense, and I think you're not alone, but I, of feeling like all of a sudden you thought you were wearing the white hat and you're wearing the black hat, like something, <laughs> some some moment of reversal. Right. And, you know, never never losing sense of the fact that I could count any number of students who were not within that mold, who escaped it, who who were, uh, you know, just incredibly wonderful to work with and have gone on to lives of um, real commitment. So despite uh, the system. Of, of activism, despite the system. But the system itself, when looked at as a whole, increasingly just recreated the problems of the past rather than addressing them. We became, as many people have written, the en- the engines of inequality. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but um, first off, Beth, what, how about for you, what drove you top of mind as you started this project? Yeah, um, I have many of the same concerns that Steve has. I, I think for me, what was at the root of it is that I've, I've always been, I mean, I'm a teacher's kid. My mom taught remedial reading K through five. Um, my aunt's a teacher. I always approached my job um, as I, I think my classroom always felt more like a primary or secondary uh, environment than a college classroom. And I always felt like a little bit of an imposter in the academy um, in terms of the fact that I, I think that the, the material that I'm so lit up by is, you know, existential literature and, you know, religious studies, modern, I mean, that sort of searcher kinds of, uh, I'm searching <laughs> for truth, right? <laughs> and I want to search alongside of my students. And I've always looked at my students as fellow travelers, uh, much to the disdain of my colleagues. <laughs> and I think that that had, had gotten to it. It just sort of took on a life of its own, that, that resistance that seemed so odd to me because I feel in my heart that we all get into this into this field because we love the material and we believe that it gives us some kind of way of you know entry point into how we want to live our lives and that's how I've always approached it um, and then there started to be again this this sort of the sense that that's really not what it's about right that's not what it's supposed to be about in higher ed and there's all of these structures in place that that continue to create these inequities that continue to create this gatekeeper kind of role and it started to feel on the one hand we have all of these uh diversity equity equity inclusion and access right and i'm saying it like that because that's how it feels it's this kind of checkbox let's you know do the training over here and then we'll all be trained in how to do those things and student centeredness and the more i looked around the less student centered the gig seemed to feel and that came really into focus uh prior to but really in kind of sharp relief as we were heading up towards the pandemic um, and in the midst of it where it seemed to me that there were so many concerns about this sort of latent, not even necessarily latent, but this sort of antagonism that it struck me full force that I didn't realize realize was there until I started to see some of the concerns that people were having, like, oh, no, our students are going to cheat if we're, you know, if we go online, that's, um, and not, oh, my gosh, our students are really going to be just at a loss and a sort of an existential loss because they're not able to pursue these questions that mean so much to them. And it just, 
that was the thing for me. It's like, how do we create a learning environment that really is rich and deep and about the questions that are driving all of us and less about the kind of like the, the credentialing and the checkboxes and all of those things that, that, that suck our good energy away from us. Yeah, Beth. And I'm curious to, to dig into that just a little more because I was a little surprised by, you know, both of you are talking about the, the slacks, the small liberal arts colleges um, that, are, as you point out, that they, this kind of a minority within the larger world of higher education, obviously a, an important um, sector that has, um, but that's one that's kind of under a lot of questions, maybe more so than other aspects of higher ed. So to focus on the liberal arts colleges, I was a little surprised at how much you were feeling that in, in that environment, because I was thinking that would be a place where it would be like this um, you know, seminary people, you know, kind of having these, these moments together before the, you know, even before the pandemic. And and it feels like you are not feeling like it was doing that. So how would you describe without naming any, you know, like pointing any fingers directly at any one person, like what was the vibe that was disrupted or like that you were feeling like you were trying to do that wasn't in the main, like what, what was it that people were doing if they weren't having these, you know, kind of um, bonds with their students and and helping them develop as people and connect with this material. Um, they, I think they think that's what they're doing. Um, I, I do believe that. I believe that. And I think that Steve and I both love the liberal arts model and we want to, see, I mean, we believe in the great potential of this model to do the things that we're hoping it's going to do. And we think that there's something unique about the liberal arts model that if it were accessible, if only it were accessible to everybody who wanted to have that experience, it could open up possibilities that maybe they hadn't, hadn't thought possible before. Um, not, that's not to say that I, you know, I think everybody should go to a liberal arts college or really that either that everybody should go to college. It's, that's part of the system that's broken is a sort of sense that there's only one path. But I think what was happening in my experience is that we still, for all of our talk of inter- interdisciplinarity and, um, creating connections among disciplines, um, that that's supposed to be right, the bastion of the liberal arts experience. We were not doing that. We, the burden was on the students to make those connections. Um, and for the, and, and, and the burden to me always seems to be on the students. And I, I reject that it should be that way. Um, not that we should be, you know, handholding and, and not in, in any way, shape or form, but that the system should be set up for students to easily be able to understand why they're doing what they're doing and what that education is for and, and how it can be relevant and, um, authentic and connected to paths that they want to pursue. And we, I think we have such a, a bipolar, maybe as a way of thinking about it, a sort of approach to education in the liberal arts, in the liberal arts sort of world in that we're, we're resistant to calling it a path to a career because that somehow diminishes it, right? It turns it into a vocational school or something like that. I don't believe that, but I think that there is that 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 perception. And then on the other hand, we so desperately want to preserve our own silos and our own identities as a 
you know, I'm a comparative literature person, so I'll pick on that, right? I'm a comparative literature person. <laughs> and what does that mean? It means that my identity is somehow bound up in that. And so we get these silos, we get these departmental um, trenches that we dig ourselves more deeply into. And I think that, I don't know if that's unique to the liberal arts, but I think it's magnified when you say you have a mission that wants to break down those silos. And then what we're doing in those places is really, is really kind of solidifying them. Yeah, I could, I could sort of build on that because uh, they're very similar to the kinds of things that I felt. I mean, you begin with the fact that we are small liberal arts colleges, i.e. we are small. Uh, so we're talking about you know, 2,000, 3,000 students at the most, a few hundred faculty, a relatively limited uh, footprint in terms of the size of the campus. If you ask me how I would deal with some of these issues at you know, the University of Michigan or Berkeley, I'm not sure I have necessarily the ideas. But here is a small thing, a small campus where things can happen. And still, as Beth is saying, we remain firmly sort of embedded in 19th century disciplines and in structures that have been set up so far in the past that they make no sense at the present time. And we have the potential to solve them because we have a small campus. From the very simple thing of why is all the history department located on the third floor of one building as opposed to integrating all across the campus? Why are we separated you know, in that kind of fashion. The sense that we can create a campus that's integrated in terms of just where we're located, uh, and yet we insist on staying where we are. And so it's the fact that we actually can do these things and yet choose not to do them that is very frustrating. That's sort of one side. The other side, you know, over the years, I mean, Oberlin has been a, a fairly highly ranked yeah, you're a famous elite place, for sure. People are dying to get, you know, like selective, trying to get in, getting rejected. Yeah, exactly. But then I hear from my colleagues uh, a moaning because we have gone from, you know, fifth in the U.S. news to seventh, to tenth, to twelfth. And they're reading that as, oh, we're not getting very good students. Uh, and that just rankles me. You know, the idea that you should only teach the elite of the students because you are the elite of the colleges, as opposed to seeing our mission as something that's very different in terms of teaching the students who are coming their way who want to be there, not because it's elite, but because A, its mission is clear and our history is clear, and B, they desperately want to be part of that. And seeing the way in which one's own colleagues become absorbed in the rankings and caring about the status as opposed to, I will love to teach anyone who's sitting in my class. Let's engage. Let's do it. And so those, those things together, the potential that small allows that we aren't taking advantage of, and the fact that we're so, uh, so deep within a ranking system in terms of how we select our faculty, in terms of how we think about our students, in terms of where we stand in the world, that we lose sight of what we have been in the past and what we should aspire to be in the future. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because I, I mean, I'll confess I was an English major. I was I went to I went to a pretty elite school. So it's like the 
Um, the but it, I and I loved it, and I feel like it changed me. But the when I visit campuses now, and I've been visiting campuses covering education for, for a long time, but when I visit these same campuses now, I see them. It, it feel they feel more like country clubs than ever. And I don't know if I don't know if that if 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 anything's changed, but but like the dialogues that we're all having in the culture, but but you know how it feels like from your book, you're arguing that there's like a, they're not as inviting to everybody as as really they were designed to be, or the mission says they are. And I don't I I don't know where that go. I mean, is it partly this prestige arm race that does that? That's part of that. I mean, we are competing for a shrinking body of students and different uh, sectors of higher ed compete on different levels. We in the small liberal arts college in the sort of elite sense of that compete on the basis of eliteness, right? And so you begin to bring out the statistics that only matter to you, SATs, ACTs, rank in class, things of that nature. And then since everybody is competing for that same small group of people, then you compete on the basis of amenities. Now, we don't have the same Division three, so we don't have the same sports kind of competition, but we do have legacy and we do have, uh, you know, merit uh, and all of those things kind of go together. But it's, it's the fact that we are, uh, we have defined our body of students as this very small body that is highly, you know, that are high achievers and have achieved. And if everyone's going for that same body, then how do you get them? From our side, we get them through uh, what we can offer, which are amenities and more eliteness. Yeah, there's this, I used to live in the D.C. area for a long time. And there's like, and a lot of cities have this area, right? Like, or there's this like the one little district where there's like the Saks Fifth Avenue and the, the these elite mm-hmm. stores. And I was just, I, these are not, um, these are not. It's not my place. And is that is that the way? It seems like that's the way you're painting the the neighborhood. These colleges are trying are ending up in, um, so to speak, of like their perception in the world or who they're they're potentially serving versus what they could do. No, I I think so very much. I mean, so there's ways in which uh, diversity gets. Uh, in, involved in that. And so our campuses, to a certain extent, not, not enough, but are becoming more diverse. But they're diverse at the elite end of things. Uh, they're diverse because we are getting diverse students who have been trained at, generally speaking, very good high schools, often private high schools, but often very good public schools. So it's not a question of diversity per se. It's rather that uh, when you select from a very small group of high schools, a very small group of students who will go on to, you know, these elite institutions, um, that once again goes back to the sense that we are becoming engines of inequality rather than uh, uh, creators of a more just system. It's interesting because, you know, there's a counter argument and we did a series um where I looked at a admissions d- debate in a public high school, the the best public high school in the nation, according to U.S. News, um, Thomas Jefferson High School in the D.C. suburbs, and there was there's a big debate going on over who should how the admission system should work because they've modified it to try to make it more um, 
accessible to a broader group of um, diversity as far as students, but it um, there was a complaint that it wouldn't then be as merit based um, by these standards of of grades and 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 sort of tests. And it, it does seem like this big tension. And one of the, the parents that was arguing for the kind of merit-based was arguing that you need to have these 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 Mount Everest, she said, these 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 things that are hard to get into, and that's you know important, and that it should be small. It should be only the people that can climb, you know, that are fit to climb this mountain, so to speak, or have trained enough. And so, I guess, what do you say to somebody who will? I mean you're going to break that would argue that you're going to break Oberlin and these small liberal arts colleges. If you, if you change your standards and just think differently about the, I mean, just let people in without thinking through these very hard to get achievements. I, I just, I don't know what the, the core and what that argument, I, I, I don't know what the definition of for, of what education is for in, in that argument. Personally, I mean, I, it seems to me that you can have, I mean, I, I, I agree that we need to have, all of us need to have something to shoot for, to be able to reach our own expectations and that we should have a system that has high expectations for everyone and should, and should help to, to allow people to reach those high expectations should first nurture the having of high expectations and then make it possible for people to reach those expectations. But we don't have that. Uh, we, we really don't have that kind of system. Um, as I see it, I mean, I think from, to me, there is, there is such important continuity between K-12 and higher ed. And we're not having that conversation nationally we need to be having, and it goes back to, I think, to what, what Steve was suggesting, such a great frustration for me is also that we have this potential. We have these, in my view, relatively low-stake labs in these liberal arts colleges to, to create an environment that is truly equitable and also rich with high expectation and rich with possibility, and we don't do that because we are also fallen, we've fallen victim, I think, to this perception that education is something that other people bestow unto you. And it, it, sh- it shouldn't be that way, right? I mean, it's, if it's, if it's about seeking knowledge, who owns knowledge? Who, I mean, there's an answer to that question. I don't think it's the right answer, but in the system that we've created, it's pretty close to the 1% who own that. And what kind of justice is there in that in that system um it 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 kind of floors me the idea that you should have to you should have to be vetted you should have to bang on the door as hard as you can to get access to to knowledge <laughs> so I, I i guess i'm i'm getting very defensive because i think that 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 counter argument is is really why we're in the situation that we're in. And by that, I mean, from the minute our kids enter kindergarten, they start getting pummeled with this idea that in order to be, you know, acceptable, legitimate human beings, there's only one path for them, right? They need to go, they need to go to the top, 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 sort of most elite institution. Why? Why do we tell, I mean, what that, and, and the way that that sort of plays back on their, I, their 
their anxiety, right? I mean, we, we're not thinking about these very key issues to to what makes human beings human beings in that kind of system. You know, we're human beings in relation to one another. We've lost sight of that. And, and we've thrown so much more pressure on these kids, again, from the moment that they enter into these institutions that are supposedly public, right? I mean, they're public schools. And they themselves are beholden to so many to so many things outside of their control that keep them from being able to create the sorts of learning environments that they in their hearts want to create, which is about having access to all of this information that can, can help you to have a life that you would, we would like to have. Um, but there was a survey that, was just, that I just read and I've seen similar, I'm sure you've seen similar ones recently, you know, where so many people today feel like their kids are not going to, achieve you know have the kind of quality of life that they have and this i think you know the you could there's an argument over or the a concern over and there's a sense that these colleges that you all have been a part of for so long are the ticket are the golden ticket are the way to um whatever happens there however good or bad the 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 teaching is that it's gonna be that um if you have that on your resume, you'll be okay. You'll get a job, you'll get a career, you'll get a standard of living that people feel like is harder and harder to get. And, and you know, I would say uh, if you were in Harvard, that's probably still true. But the mental health crisis that we're going through is not necessarily, I mean, there are huge roots to that, not the least of which our society is falling apart. But uh, one aspect of that is that if your entire 18 years up until your entrance in Harvard has been located around just this one goal uh, and Harvard rejects, you know, 97% of the people who apply there, that's a lot of anxiety that's created in the world that doesn't have to be. I mean, I think the question that you pose and that Beth uh, answered really well, and I've got similar sort of feelings about it, you know, I know it's it's out there. It, it has been ripping apart selective college, uh, selective high schools in New York City. You know, do you go to Stuyvesant or whatnot? And, and it's clearly out there. And I think the only way to answer it at one level is what is the per- what is the social purpose of education that you see for your society. Uh, if it is to produce a highly educated elite, uh, then I think we're doing okay. But if its purpose is both to you know, produce uh, individuals who are capable of solving the kinds of problems that we have within a democratic system, then I think we have to look somewhere else. And the fact is that uh, those who are selected to get into Stuyvesant, who will then go to MIT, have been, by and large, selected from kindergarten on. Uh, and so all you're doing is passing this on to the next, to the next uh, rung. I mean, I could make up numbers, but uh, we all have anecdotes, anecdotes of the one student, maybe a black student, maybe not, who a teacher found in the third grade and encouraged uh, to become a writer, encouraged to become an artist, encouraged to become a mathematician, who without that would have just been left behind. And so the resources of a society that we are wasting through this kinds of selection are 
astonishing and abominable, right? We are leaving behind people who can help us solve our problems because they can't fit into this process, because they have been selected out of it by the time they get out of second grade, right? That's the problem for me. Uh, you, I mean, we are, we're at the top end of that saying, how do we get people into our institutions? And I think Beth and I would both agree that you have to start at the bottom end or you're not going to solve this. But our expertise and where we think about is at the top end. You can't do it just at the top end. After the break, more on how these professors say liberal arts colleges should change. It's a pretty sweeping manifesto. Stay with us. For more than four decades, the ISTE conference has been recognized as one of the world's most influential education events. It's where educators and education leaders gather to engage in hands-on learning, share best practices, and hear from the brightest minds from the world of education and beyond. At ISTE Live 23, June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. From real-world lessons that empower students, to groundbreaking ways to collaborate, to leading-edge edtech tools, you'll find out how to lead next-gen learning during hundreds of strategy-packed sessions. Rediscover your passion for teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. Then bring that joy back to your school. Register today at isteconference.org. At the risk of oversimplifying, my takeaway from from reading the book is that your manifesto really means you would change the who gets in, the, the, the sort of makeup of the students and how that's selected. You would change how the faculty are selected and who what kind of faculty you have. And you would change what happens in the classrooms that are there. It's a pretty sweeping um, uh, uh, plan. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has to be um, because it's a, it's a systemic. Uh, anything else is a Band-Aid, right? I mean, and that's that's what I see when that's what I see with uh, these sort of the buzzwords that become, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, access, right? That um, when they, when we keep adding, 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 adding to this system that's broken, we get these band-aids that don't do anything. Um, I am, I'm a fierce proponent in the values of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access, but they have to be embedded in the system for them to mean anything. And so I think, that our approach is how do we, uh, I think we both, we both define our kind of thinking in this way differently. I would call myself a Nietzschean through and through, um, to the extent that we create our systems and then we have the, the ability to step back from them and say, are they healthy? Are they working? Are they doing what we had thought they were going to do? And the answer to that question is no. change it right i mean we can do that it's hard it's 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 slow going but it doesn't do anything if you keep the system you know in the same shape and you just keep hanging things on onto it and and it's very broken <laughs> it's very i mean and that's i think that's what we were we were hoping to try to think about if we had the power to create a new system that does work 
what would be the components? And it turns out these are actually, it seems whole scale and it seems, it seems immense. But when we were having the conversations we were having, it seemed to us very workable. <laughs> I mean, these are things you can do. These are things you can do. It just, it's, it's an intentional kind of thinking, right? You have to start thinking about what does our K-12 system look like? And how do we start thinking about how we reshape that? And that's, that's one of my passions is the nonprofit work that I'm doing. But how do we think about how graduate teaching, uh, how do, what does that look like? What does that look like at the graduate level when, when there are, you know, TA ships? What kind of training are these students getting? Are they getting, are they, are they thinking about how to bring a classroom to life? Or are they thinking about how to parcel out knowledge and, you know, profess it and dispense it? And that matters. That matters because if we, it matters in the same way that our teacher prep K-12 programs matter. Because if we don't think about how we're defining what that learning environment should look like to affect the sort of system that we'd like to affect, we're not going to get anywhere. You know, this book came at a moment that is is now more and more in the past, at the beginning of the pandemic. How are you feeling about how the book was received and where the conversation is going now as we come out of the pandemic? I'm putting in air quotes, whatever is happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to say how the book was received. The, the people who have spoken to us uh, you know, professionally and colleagues and whatnot, seem to uh, have liked it and and get a lot out of it. Uh, I am much uh, more pessimistic about where the situation is going post pandemic. If we could talk about that, uh, from my own experiences at my own college and and uh, others that I've seen, uh, the tendencies that we were writing against. You know, why we were rushing to get this out when the doors reopened three months from the start of the pandemic. Uh, the lessons, I mean, what we learned in the pandemic is that we have the capacity to change on a dime, to learn when we have to, to adopt new practices that we have always considered time-honored and we will never change again, Right. We think the pandemic is over and everything not only has gone back to the old ways, but has intensified. Um, I am appalled by the ways in which students are, have not become, we have not become student-centered. We have let the student as consumer drive everything. Wow, so you think it's, it's getting worse, not just the same. I, I definitely think it is getting worse that... Uh, that administrators who have relied on the faculty to be amazingly flexible during the pandemic, to learn how to teach online, to, you know, revise how your syllabus immediately, are now cracking down on faculty for all sorts of things. And I'm not even getting into the public universities in Florida and whatnot. I'm talking about our own institutions uh, where... Uh, now I'm afraid things have gone backwards, and that if we, if our, our, if our manifesto was, you know, a flag up to see who would maybe salute it, there's not a whole lot of saluting going on. Yeah, I'm afraid I, 
I agree. I, I, uh, I think that uh, on, on the one hand, there was this, there was a wonderful article that came out in the Chronicle a few weeks ago. I think it was called teaching in the, in the, in a, in a time of apathy. It was wonderful. And there are more and more, there's more and more in the conversation about, about creating a learning environment that, uh, that engages students. And I'm, I'm very gratified to see that because I think that has been something that we haven't really truly been talking about. And by that, I mean, um, a non-consumerist model, right? That this is truly about the, the recognition that if the learning doesn't stick, who cares? <laughs> who cares? You know, you can, you know, you can throw all kinds of, um, knowledge at people, but if you're not, if, if it's not meaningful, it's not meaningful. So I think there's a lot, I think that conversation to me feels like it's, it's become more, um, part of the, part of the fabric of how we're talking uh, in higher ed. And I'm, I'm very grateful to see that, but I do see this doubling down, um, in my institution, for instance, there is a, a very necessary conversation happening about the, the role of, uh, of contingent faculty which is a long time in coming to be having this actual conversation, but it's been brought to the surface. These the adjuncts who are not full-time, not, not in a career that's stable as much as, as the tenured faculty that have been dominant, that have dominated small liberal arts colleges traditionally, but less and less so. Is that the idea? Right. And, and how that contributes to this, basically these, these, you know, a second class, um, the second class sort of experience of these contingent faculty and the expectations um, that are both spoken and unspoken on well, what kind of uh, role they're going to have in the student experience and what it means while we're talking about student-centeredness that so many of these faculty are, are expected, whether explicitly or implicitly, right? There's some kind of golden you know, there's some kind of carrot that is luring them, um, which may or may not be actually spoken, but is very much felt. I was a term faculty member for the first four years, so I really understand what that feels like. There's so many expectations on these faculty to be the providers of the kind of experience that we say students should have. And it's precarious and it's so counterintuitive. And that's just one sort of way in which this is happening, but it's happening in the midst of this strategic planning process at, at my own institution that is, in my view, and I'm an outsider, so I'm just observing, but it feels like, uh, it feels like catering to this kind of, uh, so now, now we have a business college and we have a, um, a creative, uh, sort of a creative arts college and we have the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences is what this strategic plan has yielded. Uh, very sad about that. Not that I have anything against business or um, creative art. I love both of those things. But it seems very short-sighted to me that we would change the entire fabric of a college to a signal, I'm using, um, I'm forgetting the name of it, but the, the case against education, Kaplan, I, I can't remember his name, but that's his, that's his Kaplan. Um, I don't love that book, but I do think that he's right about signaling that idea that, that, that that's, that's what happens in the education world. I think it's, it's scary. It's scary to me to see that, that we're going to basically throw away the human element of our institutions to create, you know, what we think is going to be a new structure that's going to 
basically be to attract students, which I have nothing against. We need, that's the game, that's the admissions game. But why don't we attract students because we believe that they're very creative, curious, thoughtful um, seekers, right? Like why, why do we need to create a bunch of new buildings? Uh, gets to the amenities question. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm really very disappointed to see that we didn't seize that opportunity to think more systemically so it feels like, I mean, just to put a, a the, the finest point on the, your critique of the strategic plan is largely that it plays into the prestige game and the, and the consumerism. I, I'm trying to pick, pick the word you would pick. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that for a long time we have been sort of flailing around trying to figure out what our mission is and we haven't really had a mission and that's part of, part of the problem. Um, Oberlin has a mission and that might be part of the problem, right? Like this sort of sense that you have a mission and you're not adhering to it. I think that, that, that what's happened in my experience is we don't really know what we're trying to, who we're, what we're trying to be, who we're trying to be. And so we've had these, these very terrible moments, uh, since the time that I was there where we, you know, we had this one, um, sort of layoff of 50, I think it was 56 positions, 41 people were in positions at the time and cut. They were, they were all staff positions, um, which is a problem. Many of those positions were outward facing. So, you know, we'll make a, you know, we'll, we'll sort of put a stake in the ground that we're community oriented where we want to be doing community engagement. And then we get rid of all the outward facing community engagement positions. Um, we, uh, I am a beneficiary of this very, I think, very short-sighted uh, early retirement buyout. Um, so 36 of us took it because they, they changed the eligibility requirements. And I, 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 I just felt like the universe was taking me in another place. <laughs> so, I, I was going to say, you both look young to be emeritus. I'll just say that. But okay, go ahead. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. But I, I do think that that's part of the issue is like, oh, we keep forgetting that there are humans in the room. Every room that we're trying to go into are, you know, there's humans there. So what does it look like to create an institution that's human centered? That's my issue. I don't think we're doing a very good job of that sort of across across the board in a national way. Let me just add one thing to that, because I know we're running out of time here, but you, you can't read anything in higher ed these days without addressing the mental health crisis, uh, which seems to be, you know, fundamental. Um, to the extent that we don't see how we are part of that problem, to the extent that we don't accept that part of what the mental health issue is that students are facing is the realization that they will do worse than their parents, is the realization that we're living in a political system that in which democracy is seriously threatened, and yet we're not looking at the way in which our own institutions may involve them, be involved in that. We're not creating the kinds of conversations or community uh, that could address that. I mean, in Oberlin, we fired all, all our unionized workers uh, three years ago. The UAW was just fired, right? Uh, and this is supposed to create a democratic community. So the, the mental health issues we seem to be addressing as something that's coming from outside. And they have impacts, you know, social media and things like that. But we have some way of what is our own implication within that and how do we address it? 
And to the extent that we tried in the book to, at least we didn't put it in those terms, but address this kind of alienation and cynicism that comes up with, uh, you know, with constantly being told from the time you're five years old that, I mean, my, my wife works in early childhood education and their motto is college and career ready. This is for kindergartners, college and career ready. <laughs> okay. And only certain careers and only certain colleges. This is an issue. Well, thank you both for doing this. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank, thank you. you. It's been, been fun. A, yeah, it's been a great conversation. Thank you. <laughs> now, there have been some signs that a few liberal arts colleges are making the kinds of changes these professors are calling for. Just last month, for instance, Colorado College, which is ranked in the top 30 of liberal arts colleges by U.S. News, announced that it would stop cooperating with the magazine to send info for the college rankings. And many selective colleges have stopped requiring the SAT or other standardized admissions tests, arguing that those tests can disproportionately make barriers for underrepresented students. So this story is certainly not over. It seems like even three years after the start of the pandemic, and as the crisis phase seems to have ended, it is still far from clear what lessons colleges have taken from the whole experience. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. We hope you'll follow the podcast wherever you listen and sign up for our weekly Ed Surge Podcast newsletter to dive deeper into the topics we cover. Just go to edsurge.com and click on the word newsletter at the top right. This episode was written and put together by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Music this episode by Komaku. We will be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.